If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to find the book of Philippians. That's where we've been studying for the past few weeks, been studying the story of Paul and his letter to the Christians in Philippi. And I'm going to talk to you about a, t- a topic today I think is really important. I'd like to illustrate it by telling you a story. There was once a turtle that wanted to spend the winter in Florida, but he knew he could never walk that far, and so he convinced a couple of Canadian geese to help him, each one of them taking one end of a piece of rope and holding it in their beaks while he clamped onto the rope with his vice-like jaws in the center. And so they started on their flight down to Florida, and the flight was going well until someone on the ground looked up in admiration and asked, well, who in the world thought of that? That's genius. And unable to resist the desire to take credit, the turtle opened his mouth to shout, I did. Kind of a funny story to illustrate what I'm going to talk to you about today, and that's the issue of humility and pride. Uh, the story was told in, of Muhammad Ali in his heyday that he was, when he was the heavyweight champion in boxing, he got on a 747 to take a flight. And as the flight was taxiing down the runway, the flight attendants were going through the cabin to do their, their final checks. And the flight attendant walked by and noticed that Muhammad Ali didn't have on a seatbelt. And she told him, sir, please fasten your seatbelt. And he looked up and in his proud way, as he often did, he, he snapped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without hesitation, she stared at him and said, Superman don't need no plane. And I think that illustrates the point of of something that gets us in trouble oftentimes, and it's the word pride. Have you ever had a time in your life where your pride got you in trouble? You ever ever had an, an opportunity or a time in your life when you were maybe in an argument with someone and you knew that you had lost the argument, but you just kept on going trying to defend your position, even though you'd really lost? Have you ever had a moment in your life where your pride got in the way of something good in your life and maybe wreck something uh, that you love dearly. The Bible is clear that pride is destructive. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. In Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Bible and history is replete with the stories of people whose pride caused them destruction and their downfall. Early in the 2000s, Major League Baseball was embroiled in in quite a controversy when Jose Canseco, one of its star players, released a book or a report uh, saying that the majority of Major League Baseball players were using steroids. And I remember watching that story unfold as player after player who was was listed or named in, in his report came out and said, no, I didn't take steroids, I never cheated. In fact, some of them, even before Congress, said that I have never taken steroids before. Some of those very same athletes then later tested positive for steroids, and many of them served suspensions and bans. And many of those guys are probably going to miss their opportunity to go into the Hall of Fame. And one of the reasons for that is because their pride got in the way, and they simply would not admit that they had made poor choices or had done some things that were wrong. Pride is extremely powerful. It is a powerful force, but it is very destructive. I've seen a lot of marriages in my time dissolve and fall apart because of pride. I've seen people lose their jobs because of their pride. I've seen the fall of many people because they said, well, it could never happen to me. If you remember, as we've studied through Philippians, that Paul is writing to a group of believers in Philippi, and he's writing from house arrest under under Roman imprisonment, and he wrote to encourage them. If if you remember in chapter 1, He told them that even though he was in prison, even though his circumstances were bad, God was still at work, and everything that happened to Paul, Paul believed, 
happened to him for the furtherance or for the work of the gospel. But as we get into chapter 2, you'll find or, or notice the shift in Paul's tone. Let me give you a little bit of backstory here. If you read later in the book of Philippians, a man named Epaphroditus, who was in the church at Philippi, was sent from that church to Rome to help minister to Paul. And he came there and brought some, you know, some things, some basic necessities for him. And the church wanted to give to bless Paul. But when he came there, he didn't just bring the supplies. He also brought news to Paul that there were issues or problems in the church. In chapter 3, one of the issues that we'll get into later in this series was that there were false teachers who had risen up in the church and they were sowing discord and causing division in the church. And then in chapter 4, there, there are two ladies that are specifically mentioned who are at odds with each other. And we don't know exactly what some of the issues were, but Paul addresses those. And so Epaphroditus comes to deliver these supplies, but he also delivers news to Paul that there are problems and there are divisions in the body of Christ. So I want to begin in Philippians chapter 2 today and verse 1, and I want to just read one word. The beginning of verse 1 is the word so. That, that word so, some translations render that word therefore, and it's actually a, a connecting word. And what it means is that Paul is, a, is going to connect what he's about to say in chapter 2 with everything that he's been talking about in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he told the Philippians that the work that God had started in them, he was confident that God was going to see it through to completion. In verse 11, he told them that he hoped that what was happening in his life might propel them forward to live sincere Christian lives and to love sincerely as Christ has called them to love. In verse 12, Paul told them that the work that God was doing in his life and God allowed this imprisonment for the work of the gospel. And so Paul was confident of that. And then he called the Christians there in Philippi in verse 27 of chapter 1 to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then we get to chapter 2 and Paul says, So, so in light of everything that I've told you, that God is at work and God is going to bring to completion the work he started in you and that you're to live lives worthy of the gospel and to live in sincerity and, and to live lives that are loving people he says them in, to them, in light of this truth, notice in verse 1, So, or therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any aff affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of cord, in full accord and of one mind. The language of verse 1 is telling the believers that he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any partnership with the spirit of God, if there's any affection and compassion with Christ. And, and the idea is that Christ is coming up close to them and he's whispering to them and they are partnering with Christ in the work that he's called them to. And so it's the language of being pulled close by Christ and walking step by step with him. And he says, if that is going to happen. He moves to verse 2 where he says, complete my joy. You recall in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, that his joy uh, for these Philippian believers was their partnership with him in the gospel. That from the very first days in his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, when he met many of them, and now about a decade later when he finds himself in prison here, they had partnered with him for the sake of the gospel. And he says it was their, his joy when he thinks about all that God had been doing in those Philippians. But in chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I want you to complete my joy. I want you to bring my joy to its full completion. 
And notice what he says in verse 2, being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. The theme that Paul is driving here is unity. And Paul is simply saying this, Christ calls us to himself and to walk step in step in partnership with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and what should be prevalent in our lives and be prevalent and evident in the body of Christ is unity. We have four kids in our home and our two youngest, Adam and Ellie, are just about six months apart in age. Of course, we had adopted Ellie and, and I have to tell you that the sibling rivalry among them is real. I'm telling you, man, we spent a lot of days trying to uh, officiate some of their arguments and, and fights. Sharing is, is not natural to them. Uh, you know, arguing seems to be what is natural to them. But recently, uh, there was this day where we were just kind of going about our daily routine here in quarantine and doing schoolwork, and I was trying to work in between. I mean, it, it was just kind of madness. And so Leslie was working with the older kids on their school, and Adam and Ellie were just playing so incredibly well together. They were playing uh, these make-believe games, and they were kind of dressing up, and they were acting out their parts. They weren't fighting. They weren't worried about who had more time with the markers or who had what prop. They were working together. They weren't arguing and trying to get the last word in. They were just playing and laughing and enjoying each other, and they were at peace. And, and that's what Paul is calling these believers to, that they are to have the same mind and have the same love and be in full accord and of one mind, not arguing, not having division. We are called to, as believers, to unity in the body of Christ. And there's one word that is the key to unity. It's the one thing that helps us live in obedience to this call from Christ. There's only one way that we can truly be unified as Christ calls us to live. And I want you to listen for it as Paul continues in chapter 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Did you hear that word there in verse 3? It's the word humility. The King James Version translates that word humility, lowliness of mind. Can we just be honest for a second and, and just be real that most of us, would say that humility does not come naturally to us. A few years ago, Leslie and I went on a date, and we, I took her to the symphony. And if you've never been, it's a really incredible experience. But as you walk into the concert hall and you find your seat, you'll see that the orchestra has gathered on the, on the stage, and they've all got their different instruments, and they are playing various pieces of, of their music, just kind of practicing, getting warmed up, and so you've got the violin playing one thing, the flute, the piccolo, you got the clarinet, the timpanis back there doing their own thing, and it just sounds like chaos. And then there's this moment that is very powerful to watch. The first chair violinist stands up. And when she or he stands up, every part of the orchestra falls silent. And that violinist takes their instrument, and then they, they play one note. And then the entire orchestra tunes to that violin player's instrument it's a powerful powerful moment and in an orchestra one of the the biggest highest honors is to be first chair of your section 
And as I was sitting there watching that unfold on that day with my wife, it took me back to junior high. I played the saxophone in junior high. I played the alto sax my sixth grade year. And, and I remember how important it was to me to practice my music because my desire was to be the first chair. Because no one wants to be the second chair. You, you want to be the first. You want to be the best. In fact, a famous conductor was once asked which instrument he considered the most difficult to play, and his reply was second fiddle. You see, for most of us, humility does not come natural. We, we want to be first. We want to be the ones that receive the recognition and the honor. We want to be the ones that are elevated to, to be respected by other people. And so if you and I are going to have unity within the body of Christ, we are going to have to live lives of humility. And if we are going to be able to listen to the whisper of Christ as he pulls us too close to himself to walk in a step with the Holy Spirit, it's going to require us to live in humility. It's going to take partnership with the Holy Spirit of God in order for us to fulfill this in our lives because most of us want things our way. Most of us, our natural bent is to see things the way that we want them to be seen and to live our lives the way that we want to live and to do the things that we want to do. We want God to do things our way. And when something happens in our lives that interrupts what we want, we get frustrated. But it's not about you. Remember, we talked about that in the book of Philippians, that, that your life and what God has allowed in your life is not about you. It's always about Others, you'll remember what Paul said in chapter one and verse twelve that everything that Paul that had happened to Paul, all of the suffering that he was going going through, Paul said was for a reason, and that reason was for the furtherance of the gospel, so that other people might come to know what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And he rejoiced in chapter one and verse eighteen that Christ was preached even because of his suffering. So it's not about you. I want you to listen for it again in verse three. Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I want you to take home two things really today. The first one is this. Humility is motivated by a love for others. In verse 3, he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Stop trying to be first chair. Stop trying to make everything about you. It's not about you. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In fact, I want you to write that down or maybe type it in the comments and, and let this truth sink into your minds. And it's this. Humility is motivated by love for others. Let that sink into your heart. Humility is motivated by a love for other people. If we don't genuinely love others, we will never be as humble as God has called us to be. Stop worrying about having the first seat at the table or the place of prominence and think about other people first. Stop worrying about what you're going to get out of relationships and your service and your good deeds and just simply think of other people first. Think about a few questions here. Are you more concerned about having your way or are you more concerned about serving others? Do you love others the way that God has called you to live or do you find yourself more preoccupied with yourself? Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His response was twofold. The first one is to love God with all that you are. And the second one, which is equal to the first one, is to love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 35, Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all 
and be the servant of all. One of the most striking moments in all of Scripture to me is found in Matthew chapter 20. If you have read that story, Jesus had announced to his disciples that he was going to die. And his disciples, rather than saying, oh, Lord, we want to be here with you. We want to you know, come alongside you. We want to suffer with you. We will be right with you every step of the way. Their response was, was very different. The mother of James and John came to Jesus right after that and said to him, please grant positions of authority to my boys in your kingdom. I mean, it's just an unbelievable thing that Jesus had just told them, I'm going to suffer and die. And what they're worried about is, yeah, but what's my position going to be in your kingdom? And Jesus' response to them in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 27 was this, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Those who would be first among you must act as a slave and a servant to others. Those walking in humility live, ex- live out exactly what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. That's what a servant or a slave does, looks after the needs of other people rather than self. So true humility is motivated, first of all, by a love for others. The second thing I want you to take today is this. Humility is modeled by Jesus. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Humility is modeled by Jesus. And maybe type that in the comments or write it down, maybe tweet it, whatever it may be, that humility is modeled by Jesus. Notice verse 5. Have this mind in you, or have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is modeled by Jesus. And I want you to see the connection between verse 2 and verse 5. In verse 2, Paul had told them to have the same mind. And in verse 5, he tells them exactly what that mind is. It's the mind of Jesus Christ. You see, humility is the key to unity. You cannot have unity in the body of Christ without humility. In our house, we have what I call the division of labor. There are some things that Leslie's really good at. There are some things that I'm really good at, and especially when it comes to schoolwork. And so sometimes the kids will come to me and they'll say, hey, dad, will you, will you take a look at this? Or I need to know what assignment I need to do. And I'll tell them, look, that's a question for mommy. She's in charge of that. So you go talk to her. And so the kids will will go in there and talk to her. And then uh, sometimes I'll hear the kids in the other room go to Leslie and say, uh, Mom, can you help me with this math problem? And she says, nope, that's a dad question. And when I hear her say that, that's when I usually go and hide so that the kids can't find me. But we have this division of labor because each of us have a, a unique responsibility, but we want things in our home to work together. We, we want there to be unity. And what I want you to see is this, that humility is the key to unity in the body of Christ. And Christ is the key to humility. So Christ is the key to humility, and humility is the key to unity in the body of Christ. And so if you want humility, and therefore if you want unity in the body of Christ, you seek Jesus. You seek the mind of Christ. You don't look somewhere else where it may not be found, where something doesn't have the answer. Listen, politics does not unify us as the body of Christ. Even many times, suffering doesn't unify us 
as the body of Christ. What unifies us is the mind of Jesus Christ. Humility is found in Christ, and that's where we should seek it. But I want you to really fully understand the depth of the humility of Christ because this passage that I just read to you in Philippians chapter 2 is one of the most rich passages theologically in all of the Bible. In verse 6, notice what Paul says about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. None of us can make the claim that we are God. To, to do that would be to try to grasp at something that's simply not ours. In fact, some translations say that that it's, he didn't think it was robbery to count himself equal with God. It wasn't something that he was taking that he didn't deserve. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and, and that Word was Jesus. You find that later in that. So I want to read that passage, but I want to insert Jesus, and I want you to listen for all that it says about who Christ was. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. You know, here on my phone, just like many of you, we take pictures. We take pictures of our family. We take pictures of our, our kids. And so if I just went through here and scrolled through some of these pictures, you might look at it and say, Okay, yeah, that's a picture of Robbie because it, it looks like him. It, it, you know, it's his hair, even though i got the coronavirus thing going on here. You know, that looks like him. It's a smile. He's got the facial hair, the gray hair in it. I mean, yeah, that looks like Robbie. But what you would say of the picture on my phone is that's a picture of him, but it's not the real Robbie because they're different. This is the real Robbie that lives. This is simply a digital image that kind of looks like me. And what John says in John chapter 1 is that when we see Christ, we're not seeing a picture of God that looks like God, that kind of acts like God. No, John says Jesus was God. Paul affirms that in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 that in the beginning that Jesus was there, he was in the form of God. The same substance, the same nature, the same essence. Jesus was the uncreated creator. There was no one before him. There were no one that will outlive him. He is, the, he is the uncreated creator of the universe. He is God. He is Lord of all. And yet, that God, that God that was the same in nature and essence, the eternal God of the universe, in verse 7, emptied himself and became a servant. There's a powerful picture in John's Gospel of some of Jesus' final moments with his disciples. At the Last Supper, when, when they had eaten, he got up and he washed the disciples' feet. And if you remember that story, Peter told him, Lord, this is not the way that it should be. And, and Jesus' response to, to Peter was, I have to do this. And after he had washed their feet, he sat back down and then he said this to them in John chapter 13. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. That word Lord is supreme ruler, the, the highest of high. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus modeled 
what humility was. He was the eternal God of the universe. And he emptied himself and came and lived among us as a man and took the form of a servant. But not just a servant who was willing to wash the feet of his disciples. Paul says this in verse 8. In being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself even lower is the essence there by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died a death, not that he deserved. He died the death that his disciples deserved. Those same disciples that he had washed their feet just moments earlier, he then went to the cross and died not for his sin, but for theirs. There are four ways that Jesus modeled humility, Paul says here. The first thing is this, humility is emptying yourself. It's not about you. Secondly, humility means serving. It means putting yourself at the disposal of other people for their good. Third, humility is submission to God. It's acknowledging that what God's will is, is what should be done. And humility is giving yourself for the good of others. And that's what the cross was all about. It was Jesus in the ultimate act of humility, going to a place that he didn't deserve and dying a death that he shouldn't have died because he had no sin. But on the cross, he emptied himself and he served and submitted to God in obedience and he gave himself for your good and for mine. So which of those do you struggle with in your own life? You see, we are called to unity in the body of Christ, and that's only possible with humility. And, and Jesus hu, uh, modeled what humility was. He emptied himself, and he served, and he submitted to God, and he gave himself for the good of others. Which of these do you struggle with today? Could you take a moment and just write a prayer? Maybe write it in the comments, write it in a journal, uh, text it to yourself. Maybe post it on, on your Facebook page or on your social media. Just a prayer saying, God, help me to empty myself. Help me to die to self and kill my pride so that I can be your humble servant. Maybe your prayer needs to be, God, help me to find my place where I can serve others. Maybe your prayer is, God, there's this area of my life where I'm not submitted to you. And so, Lord, humble me before the cross of Jesus so that I might serve you in obedience. Maybe there's an area of your life that you haven't been giving fully to Christ and now needs to be the time that you pray to God, God, humble me to give myself for the good of other people. And because of what Jesus did, Paul ends this section with this tremendous thought. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The king, who in eternity past was on his throne as the God of the universe, humbled himself and became a servant, and became even more of a humble servant by going to the cross for you. And because of his humility and because of his willingness to empty himself and serve others and give his life for the good of other people, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, 
every knee will bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gotten to a point in your life where you in your heart bowed your knee before Jesus? Has there ever been a point where you realized that, that your only way to be right with God is not through you, but it's through the king who came as a servant and died on the cross for you? Today needs to be the day that you confess with your tongue and you bow your knee and your heart and you come to Jesus and you say, there's only one way to be right with God. And it's not through my sacrifice. It's through the sacrifice that Jesus made for me on the cross. Has that ever happened to you? Has there ever been that point in your life where you got off the throne of your life and you gave Jesus the rightful place and, and you, you put your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross and then you began to serve him with your life? Today needs to be the day that all of us bow our knee to Jesus because the truth is this promise in Philippians chapter 2 is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'd like to encourage you, let that be today. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until that day where you finally see him face to face and you stand there condemned because of your sin. Today can be the day that you in your heart bow your knee to him and cry out to him in faith and recognize that he's the Savior and make him the King and the Lord of your life. Because that's the only way that we can live the life that God's called us to live is if Jesus is the King of our lives. Humility is motivated by a love for other people. And that love for other people was modeled by Jesus Christ. Humility is the key to living the life that God has called us to live. Sometimes in my own life, I find pride rearing its ugly head. I'm sure you do as well. And in those moments where I feel prideful and I feel like I, I'm deserving of more, or I feel like God has not treated me the way that I think I should be treated or things are not going the way that I think they should go, I have to crawl up to the cross of Jesus in my mind. And I really will do this. I'll close my eyes and I'll, I'll crawl into the dirt up to the cross of Jesus Christ and I'll imagine what that dirt is like and how it looked and that the blood was there at the base of the cross. And I, I look at what I imagine the cross to look like, like and I look up and I see Jesus hanging on the cross, not for my sin, not for, for his sin, but for mine. And, and as, I, as I kneel there in my heart before the cross, I realize that what happened to Jesus on the cross is exactly the way that I should live in my life. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He told his disciples, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus went to the cross willingly to die to self for the good of other people. And that's the way that I'm called to live as well. How about you? Are you living in humility? Are you surrendering your life to Christ? Pride is so destructive. Pride can ruin our lives and our careers and our family. It can ruin us financially, and, but more importantly, it can ruin us spiritually. There are many people who are like King Agrippa in the Bible, that when Paul shared with him the life-changing message of the gospel, King Agrippa said, almost you have persuaded me to become a Christian. But King Agrippa would never bow his knee to Jesus. But I want you to know that he is the king. And he humbled himself and went to the cross for your sins. But he rose victorious over the grave. And now he's seated on the throne. And so today, if you've never in your heart bowed the knee to Jesus, would you just right where you are today, bow your knee to him in your heart. Come to him and, and say in your heart, 
I believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for me. And place your faith in Jesus as your only Savior. And then make him the king of your life and say, Lord, help me to serve you and to live in humility so that I might love you and love other people as you've called me to live. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me today? What I would like to do to finish this message out is simply pray Philippians chapter 2, this passage that we've read today. And so I'll pray it over us today. Father, we come in the blessed and wonderful name of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would listen to your spirit and walk step in step with the spirit of God. Lord, that we would find joy in serving and having the same mind and that there would be unity in the body of Christ. That we wouldn't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, you would make us a people who count others as more significant than ourselves. And help us, Lord, to not look after our own interests, but look after the interests of others. Help us all to have the mind of Jesus Christ, who was willing to empty himself and, and to obey you and to submit to you and go to the cross for the good of other people. Make us a people who will humble ourselves at the cross of Jesus and live that same life. And today, Lord, in our hearts, we exalt Jesus to the highest place. We confess that at times we have made ourselves the Lord of our lives. But today we're reminded that Jesus is highly exalted and that his name is above every name. And today we bow in our hearts to him and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for your glory and for your honor. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.